this week's episode of Fighting Words. Donovan here, and I am joined today, back by popular demand, mm. actually, Jack Korzanowski. Yes, sir. I literally, you were requested to be back, and uh, it was one person, so I call that popular demand. Yeah. And I kind of thought, they were like, man, I really enjoyed that, and I kind of thought, we'll just go get lunch with the guy. That's a good point. No, but I'm like the mediator between the relationship. So well, and you bring people on, then you, you know the whole the whole audience gets to maybe not meet them, but at least get a view. Of who yeah, they yeah. Are. Well, I guess that's true. This guy's he's being selfless. He's like, I could just grab coffee with the guy, but I want everyone, oh, yeah, the whole world to know. Yeah, let's go with that. I can appreciate that. Hey, today we're gonna get into stuff about the unseen realm Q and A on the unseen realm. Some of the questions you sent me. This is like a you sent me like six episodes worth of questions. I I, I was reading it and I was gonna comment in my email is like where there's no way we're going to get through all these maybe i did comment on that but it was like that's all right we'll, we'll just get as far as we can yeah uh, but before we get into that you were talking a little bit about how antisocial you are yeah in yeah. public and how you're bothered by human the presence of humans uh i wouldn't put it that way well that's what i took from it that's what you took from it okay. you like you you get bothered by in public people just greeting you saying hello or you said making inane comments like, yeah what's an inane comment well like, like an one, example so we were talking about so i'm wearing a shirt that says i'm a pepper it's a dr pepper themed shirt and when i walked in uh-huh. you know donovan looked at the shirt and said i'm a pepper made a comment oh so you i'm one of the guys no you're not because i know you and <laughs> you know, you know, okay. we're here to talk but like one time i was as i was telling you i was walking through a parking lot minding my business going into a store and a guy makes a very similar comment and i'm looking at him saying what what am i supposed to say to that like i'm doing here i'm like minding my business i got thoughts going through my head and you interrupted them just to make some comment that isn't going to help me it's not going to help you see i, I don't uh, get it I'll tell you, so here's the motivation. When I saw that, it, it brought back memory because I remember that slogan. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? So they don't really do that anymore. At least I don't think so. Dr. Pepper commercials. That's an old uh, 80s. Oh. It's the old 80s uh, Dr. Pepper campaign. I didn't know that. See, this is the sort See? of thing. This is good conversation. So there used to be a song, I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, you're yeah. a pepper, which I don't know exactly what that, I guess that means you drink Dr. Pepper. You're a fan. I you love know, You're that, in the yes. club. So it just br- it just brought back this memory. And so I shouted it out, mm. thinking that it would build a bridge. You're like, yes, I remember that. But you actually are wearing a shirt that you don't know what the significance is. See, and now I know that and say, this was a productive conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Donovan. So you need to go find that guy. And Well, I, no, I, don't, I do. And so it, it, I could go up to him. I'm going to say, why didn't you mention this? That would have been an interesting conversation. Okay, let's talk a little more pet peeves. Sure. Uh, I have two mm. that I want to talk about. Really? Okay. One is... When it's obviously go time, yep. and we're in a pinch, and someone asks you a deeply, deeply sincere question about your state of being. Example. It's a very specific. It is, but being. it happens. Well, it happens to me a lot. It, number one, it happens. Uh, I've, it's happened to me like while we're moving, helping people move. Okay. You know, and so we go help people move, and there's people maybe you know I don't see very often, but we know each other from church, and you know, like, hey, how are you? Hey, what's up? But like, here's an example. I'm coming down the ramp. Yep. Right. With a box going inside. Mm-hmm. The, the other person is coming to the truck and then I'll just say, hey, man, what's up? They go, how are you? And I'm like, in a hurry, <laughs> busy, 
good. Let's grab coffee later. Now's not the time. And and uh, and 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 sometimes this happens before service, right? right? It's like nine fifty nine. Yep. Like go time. I got I'm adjusting my mic. Is where's the band? You know, is the tech up and ready? And and I and I don't get a look a quick like, hey, what's up? Or good morning? Or it's a now. How are you? It's like uh, occupied. And I understand they don't get the context, and then you know it's grace for that. But it's just funny. That's mm-hmm. a that's one pet peeve. Okay. I can appreciate that. I I've uh, maybe not ran ran into. Well, I'm sure I ran into similar situations myself. And and you're right. It's just like, are you not aware of this like uh, of everything around you? It's that- really hard to get into this. Right. I appreciate that question. Let's grab coffee, and then you could sit across from me and go, "Man, how are you? Oh, man, we can go." Yeah. Um, another one is, uh, I don't think you should park in other people's driveways, and I've violated this at times, and I got to remind myself not to, um, because. It's reserved for them. That's their reserved parking spaces. So, for example, um, you come over to my house. Yep. No big deal. You just pull in the driveway. That's what it's there for, right? Unbeknownst to you, my wife is not home. She's oh, out yeah. with the groceries and the kids. And now she comes back, and there's Jack Korzanowski's car just sitting in the middle of the driveway, mm-hmm. oblivious to reality. Yeah. And so now she has to park in the street. Maybe it's snowing, raining. She's got all these groceries. And you have ruined her life in my defense i at least always try, try to remember to ask do i park in the driveway or on the street yeah i guess that's good if you ask i've literally thought of putting a sign at the end of the driveway that says do not park in driveway and aubrey was like you can't do that maybe you just need like, to stop having so many comp not so much stop company having people over yeah. well, that's why we stopped you know we just just i stopped that, helping that people move alone. yep i stopped helping people move i stopped inviting people over mm-hmm. yeah and i am no longer peeved there you go was it worth it Oh, such peace. <laughs> such peace, man. Actually, actually, I helped someone move last week, and uh, I realized this is great exercise. They moved into a second-story apartment, mm-hmm. so tons up and down, up and down, up and down. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is good exercise. And um, I never got bothered by it. I was like, this is good. I'm, my heart beats up. Yep. I'm sweating. As opposed to, we got a treadmill. My wife found an old used treadmill because she likes to run, but she hates to be cold. So let's get mm-hmm. it for the winter. And um, anyway, I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna get on this thing. I am furious about 90 seconds into this thing. Like I am so bored out of my mind. Yep. And just I'm furious. I'm like, I can't. I can't. And even I'm even like have my phone like watching something, right? So. It's like, oh really? Yeah, so even when phone, you are no. watching something, you can't do it. It's it's purposeless. Mm. I, I I just can't get it out of my mind that I'm just on this treadmill, and there's no end goal there's no and so i uh, 90 seconds and i'm done but i can help someone move up and down stairs for an hour and a half and i'm not bothered because there's there's an objective in it yeah and and you're not just sitting there staring at a wall like i've seen trend bills where there's not like you know like like at a gym or something where there's not a tv right in front of you and there's not really a good spot to put your phone and then i look at people just running on them with no so, headphones. Sometimes with no headphones, <laughs> just maniacs. And I'm, yeah, I'm just like, stay away from that person. And I take a note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, that, yeah. They're ima- they're chasing someone on that treadmill. Yeah, they're you preparing. Know? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're imagining. Yeah. No, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, like yeah. they they are mentally prepping <laughs> for for the chase. <laughs> oh, that's rich. Um, good stuff. Anything else? Any other pet peeves of yours? Oh, I've got plenty. None that I can recall off the top of How my head. How many people are going to feel judged by me now? They're going to be like, oh, I parked in your driveway. and 
Well, see, that's just because you're peeved by something doesn't mean that you think less of the person who does it. Because for me, right, the, the the conversations like when people just perk up and just say good morning as I'm walking into work or something and I don't know them. If it's somebody I know, it's a different story. But if it's somebody who I don't know and they say good morning, I don't think they're a bad person or think any lesser of them because I'm sure that they enjoy that. I think more of them, in fact. They're just like no respecter of persons. You know, just fearless. Just, well, I'll park in your driveway. Mm. You know, that's the kind of, you know, what do you call it? Chutzpah? Chutzpah? Chutzpah that the world needs, you know? So hmm. so now you're confused. Should you park in people's driveways or not? Well, I don't know. If you fear me, don't. Mm. If you fear God, then do. I don't think right? that's how it works. I think how it works. <laughs> Unseen realm. Yes. Let's go. So I think it's gonna I think it's a good idea to give people people some context, right? So what is this the unseen realm book, right? Mm-hmm. It is so for me, I re- it was a book recommended by you and by um, Michael Van Waugh and I think maybe a couple other people. And it just talks it talks about <clears throat> the spiritual warfare side of of biblical scripture. And Michael Heiser, I'm going to refer just refer to him as Heiser from now on. He's the author, and uh, I forget his credentials. I haven't written down. Um, well, he's a professor but, at, at Midwestern Theological Baptist Seminary, at least. So he's yeah, he's a, a PhD professor within the Orthodox tradition, the evangelical church. Yep, and has, I think, was it a PhD or a master's in like Hebrew, the Hebrew language and Hebrew studies, and, and Semitic languages too, not just Hebrew. So, yeah, he's a bit of a uh, big brain. Yeah, so he's able to dig into the actual original text of the Hebrew and, and the, the text of the other sc- texts from like the surrounding areas ancient the, Near East, the ancient Near East culture right yeah. so like the actual you know Babylon, Babylonian Babylon, Babylonian or Assyrian religious texts he can go in and, and analyze much more deeply than any lay person yeah. could so he takes that knowledge and digs into the Bible and discusses the occurrence and mentions and references to spiritual warfare spiritual beings uh, topics of that nature and discusses the implications and yeah. that's what the unseen realm is. And there's a lot of there's four, no, fifty some chapters, and like each one of them is a, is its own little subtopic. So there's a lot of material, um, and it's pretty easy to read. And he gets deep into the scripture and and uh, the technical side of it. And it's in a word, it's very interesting and enlightening. And so I read it, and I still have some follow-up questions I wanted to discuss with Donovan, and that's that's good. Here. So let me uh, let me give a little more context. Uh, we've we didn't really do a series on this book, but it was it influenced the Acts of War series, hmm. where we went through the Book of Acts, and then um, we were highlighting you know certain things that were in there that were relevant to the unseen realm, like. That's my phone. Let me mute that. Um, so we touched on it a bit, and uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, we haven't taught, and I don't think we would just do a series just on that book. But certainly recommend it. There's a shorter version called Supernatural. If you mm-hmm. don't, if you want to, you know, kind of breeze through a little quicker. But the the big takeaways that I think that in are well, number one, kind of one of the most shocking things he does, I think, is is tells people that there are other gods. Yep. You know, and I think for the Christian perspective, you're saying, well, no, there's only one God. And so, yes, that's true. So there's only one uh, self-existent, eternal being, Yahweh, Mm -hmm. the creator of the universe, Trinitarian God. Absolutely. But in the Bible, other spiritual beings are referred to as gods, Mm -hmm. right? So 
and that can be shocking and jarring for people if you're not, you know, if you don't acclimate to that new paradigm. And so God's is a word means uh, uh, that's translated from the word Elohim, and um, it just means kind of a, a divine being, a spiritual being, mm-hmm. right? So if you capital G got it, you know, then it's Yahweh. Mm-hmm. If you lowercase, then it could be him or any members of the divine council, which are high-level yeah. angelic beings that rule the rule the uh, the earth with God, like in the beginning of the book of Job, the sons of God you know, are there gathered. This is the divine council. Um, and so so that's a little jarring. Um, and then, you know, kind of another big thing is that he, I think he just does a good job of showing how much we kind of miss. Like, I think yeah. every Christian would yeah. say, well, of course there's angels and demons. Um, and uh, even maybe uh, divine principalities and powers is how Paul refers to them. Like, right, okay, but... And I would think a lot of people don't understand what that means, too. So, yeah, no, keep going. No, yeah. no, so anyway, so then he just traces out, like, hey, there's a lot of places in the Scripture where this is kind of the underlying uh, cultural, spiritual context, and, and if you don't see it, you'll miss things that are that are being implicated or said. Yep. And so I think it's, a, yeah, it's great. Uh, it's really good. I don't appreciate his treatise on free will. I disagree with it. So even though I recommend the book, I'm, I'm a Reformed, monergistic, Calvinist guy. I don't believe, and I'm not going to get into that right now, but I'll just say— you kind of got to tolerate that, in my opinion. And he gets into this whole thing about free will, and, yeah. and uh, but it, it doesn't seem to pervade the whole book, though. He mentioned... no, it was like a section, yeah, like a couple yeah. chapters or something, and then he'll kind of bring up that language occasionally. But yeah, it's not; it's still worth the read. And uh, so nobody's perfect. He's close. Um, and then the other big thing was the Deuteronomy thirty-two worldview, yes, which was huge. I, I think it's worth it just to go over that. Can you do that? In context, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, hold on. Let me uh, bring up my notes here. Yeah. Uh, that's going to do a lot better than me just rambling on. Uh, where are you? There you are. Oop, I'm going to flip it on my phone there. <clears throat> da, 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 da. Uh, where'd you go? There we are. Okay, uh, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview and its implications. I'm probably not going to read all of this. Much of Heiser's theology radiates from what he describes as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. The Deuteronomy 32 worldview is based on Deuteronomy 32 <gasps> verses. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, verses eight through nine. So it's short, uh, and takes the passage and takes this passage as critical in understanding the relationship between God, humanity, and the sinful Elohim, or just the Elohim in general, or the spiritual beings. This passage is itself a reference to Genesis 11, verses 8 through 9, wherein God confuses the languages of and then scatters those building the the Tower of Babel. When seen alongside several other passages, a yet larger picture comes into view. So uh, I'm going to skip those for right now just to continue on. So the Deuteronomy 32 worldview is that God disinherited the sinful nations, giving them over to the sons of God, who abuse their authority and rule them wickedly. In the end times, they will be judged by God, the divine counsel, and the holy ones, or saints, followers of Christ, uh, for this abuse, who will then replace these corrupted Elohim. And there are one, two, three, four, five verses that kind of help paint that picture. Yeah, can I let me just read those two verses at least in Deuteronomy? Yeah, that are being referenced here. Deuteronomy thirty-two. God, uh, Moses is speaking to Israel and telling them to remember God and His faithfulness. And in verse eight, he says, uh, 
Well, let's start in seven. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. So that's, I think, clear linking language to the Tower of Babel event. Mm -hmm. He divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples. So he allotted where they would go. Mm according to the number of the sons of God. And again, this is just a key passage, but you can get into other uh, corroborating texts. Mm -hmm. um, according to the number of the sons of God. So that's the, that's the verse that, that um, is basically referring to that idea that they were given stewardship, the sons of God, being these high-ranking principality and power uh, spiritual beings, and, um, and he, he gave them stewardship. Oh, wait, wait, let me keep going. Yeah. Um, but the Lord's portion, verse 9, is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule these people, and yep. you, under my rule, will rule the other nations. Yep. Um, and then they go corrupt. And so one of the things that I think is key, a key takeaway from this, is that I think a lot of Christians envision idols just as like made up gods. Like we have this idea that we want a God yeah. with kind of like eternity in our hearts. And so we we have these desires for worship and security and significance and, and so we we implant that or, you know, project that on other things. You know, it could be here, you know, it could be modern things and but in ancient uh, cultures or even modern day cultures that are still more traditional. You know, we, we invent a god, mm -hmm. and then we imagine him and then uh, or her, and then we carve a little idol or make some visual representation, and, and it's more of a, a human invention as opposed to, no, it's a real, these are real spiritual beings that communicate with people and nations and mislead them, yep. and that's where these false ideas of false gods come from. And then he can, he'll go through the scriptures and show you how this happens over and over. So when you talk about a god like Baal or Baal, however you want to say it, mm -hmm. it's not an imaginary thing. Mm -hmm. It's an actual demon, fallen angel that has corrupted this nation and misled them. Right. And so that that's a that's a bit jarring for people, I think. So when you say, "Hey, like, mm -hmm. you know," say when you go into you know global missions, particularly, or we can talk about what that how, how that plays out in the mm -hmm. U.S. Um, and you've got these people that have got their ideas of. Worship. It isn't just this innocent thing that man. They're just misled, you know, and confused. It's no, they're under demonic captivity. Yeah. So you know, and you know, kind of like what what you said before. I, I really studied this topic. I thought mentions of Baal and um, you know Ashtoreth and and Marduk and all those other gods were just you know the Babylonians or the Assyrians just made them up and that was it. And maybe people just didn't know how the world works, so they came up with these all the concept of a god. Uh, to explain why it rains or, you know, why the wind blows, things like that. And that was really the extent of it. But Heiser breaks down quite well, and, and uh, he's not the only one. I'm trying to remember other sources I've looked into it. But, uh, break, you know, Heiser breaks down uh, biblical evidence showing that, no, that's not what's going on. It's, the, it's these fallen Elohim, uh, sinful, rebellious sons of God who said, no, we're going we're gonna to take over these nations. They're going to be ours. So let's do one more key passage that that um, influences this this theology. Is that uh, are you going to Psalm eighty two? Yeah. Ah. Um, and this is where kind of the God's language comes in. Yeah. 
this is one of the other, like the Deuteronomy 32 worldview that Heiser lays out. Again, there's like five texts, including Deuteronomy 8 through 32, 8 through 9. This psalm passage is a second one. Yeah. So, well, actually, this was the key one, where this was the key verse, Psalm 82, 1. Yeah. This is what, like, tipped him triggered off. Triggered him. Yeah. So. He's triggered. Yeah. So, in a good way. Um, psalm 82, let me just, the whole, the whole psalm, it's eight verses. It starts out, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And that's where, if you look at the Hebrew, the, the word God at the first half of the verse is the same as the word gods, but it's singular versus plural in the second half. Yeah, well, the, the words are the same. It's the grammar around them that you have to use to distinguish To distinguish them. the yeah. singular and plural. But yeah, so the idea is that God has taken the place in the midst of the gods. Well, who is that? Yeah. Right? And then... Here's God speaking in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So he's saying to these people in this divine council who are referred to as gods that they have judged unjustly. And then he exhorts them, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I think he's referring to the peoples of the earth. In verse 6, speaking to the divine council, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. So there's the idea of the sons of God there. All of you, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Why? Because they're not men. Right. They yep. are divine beings, Elohim. Yep. Um, but you will be judged because you have misled the nations. And verse 8, arise, O God, I think this is a prayer from the psalmist to true God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Right. So there's this idea that the nations will return to God right. um, and be taken from the dominion of the sons of God. And, and again, right, right there where it says, you shall inherit the nations, it, it, it'd be uh, pretty rational to ask, well, doesn't God already have the nations? I mean, the world is, is his, right? And it's like, well, yes, but if you go back to Deuteronomy... 32, 8 through 9, it says that he gave the nations up to the sons of God. It says, you take them. Yeah. And then he only kept Israel for himself. Yeah. And so, you know, familiar verses that, that kind of speak to this is, uh, you know, in First Peter, he talks about us being rescued and saved. And he says, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So, mm. Yes, there's this ultimate sense in which Christ sits on the throne above the principalities and powers and rules everything and everyone. Mm -hmm. And then there's this penultimate sense in which no, there, there is a—Satan uh, is called in Second Corinthians uh, 4, the prince of the power of the air, or the, I'm sorry, the god of this world. Mm. Or even Jesus says, you know, the god of this world is coming, and it's clear from the context he's referring to Satan. So who's the god of this world? Is it, is it God, capital G, or is it God— you know, lowercase g, the god of this world, Satan, yeah. who offers Christ the kingdoms and the nations. Like, well, yep. why? Because he has some degree, some level of stewardship yeah. over them. Yep. So I, I, you know, on that, I always thought that he was just lying, right? Say, like, I don't have these, I don't have power or authority over these towns, but I'm going to pretend I do just to tempt Jesus. I, I, that's how I always thought about it. I kind of just dismissed it from there. But alongside all like you know Heiser's study and all these other scriptures that he points out you know that's not the case he has authority or at least 
some well, he fallen does. sons of God have authority over the nation. So maybe a helpful analogy, if this seems strange, that like we have categories for this. Like, who has authority over my house? Well, I do, and my, with my wife. And so I do have the authority to buy it, sell it, let people live there, let people not live there. Like, this is my house. Okay, but who really has authority over my house? Like, mm. God, he could take me out of, out of the picture. I thought, could, I thought you were going to say Aubrey. Aubrey yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, he could take me out of the picture. He could destroy the house. He could do what he wants with it. It's his. It's not really mine. I have stewardship that's been granted to me. Mm-hmm. And I could use it wickedly. And there's the idea, right? As a, as I could faithfully steward this home in alignment with God mm-hmm. and lead my children to worship Christ and you know try to embody Christ-likeness in the home and how we how we our economy runs. Or I could say, no, 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 no. we're going to be wicked. And we're going to, you know, abuse is going to run in this home and, you know, we're going to squander resources and tell lies like and uh, in the same my my ownership or stewardship of that home would not cease just because I was being wicked. Right. Right. Now, at any point, God could reclaim that. And that's the idea that the sons of God have gone wicked in their stewardship of the nations. Mm -hmm. And in due time, through the course of redemptive history, God will reclaim that. Right. Okay, so that's a lot of kind of basic teaching of what the unseen realm uh, is getting into. So, um, and you had some questions. Yeah. Um, so can I, we go with the last one first? Sure. I, so I sent I sent them in the order I think that would, you know, was the order that I was oh, okay. thinking of discussing them. But so, but you know what, go, I was reading that last one and I'm like, you know, that's a, that is a, uh, a touchy topic. So why don't we go ahead and Discuss. I was actually when you said that about you know God bringing the ultimate justice at the end, that was like oh that this very last question in the list deals with that. Okay, so let's do it. So let's do that, and then we'll go back one through five. A common complaint, this is your words, um, against the Judeo-Christian God is that he must either not be all powerful or not be all loving, since he continues to allow suffering in our world. At least, allow. Well, I'm writing this from the perspective of the of the complainer, which is interesting because I so I'm teaching song, uh, Isaiah 45 this week, which is where he says he creates darkness and light, causes calamity, creates calamity. It's very strong language, um, and I think it's jarring, mm-hmm. and I understand why. And so one way to get out of that, people do is they say, well, 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 he just allows it. Mm-hmm. But I think the question, the fact that people frame the question that way, why does God allow suffering, proves that just changing it to allow doesn't get rid of the problem. Right. Let's just grant that he doesn't create calamity, but he simply allows it. Is He's it, still well, allowing it. Why, is he, why does he yeah, allow it? He yeah. should stop it, right? So it's either he must not be powerful enough. Or he's not loving enough. Yeah. Right. So he either can't stop it, or he can and just chooses not to because he actually doesn't like you all that much. Is the complaint right? So Heiser argues that for God to remove suffering, and this is where we get into the free will stuff, where I just disagree with his mm. theology. Heiser argues that for God to remove suffering from humanity, he would need to remove humanity itself, which would obviously go against his intention for humanity in the first place. However. Why is this the case? Can God not bring the new creation today? Um, okay, so Heiser's answer here, okay. Wow, there's just a lot here. 
A common complaint against the Judeo-Christian God is that he must either be not be all-powerful or not all-loving since he continues to allow suffering in the world. So I would just, let me just... And I'll, I'll preface this. This is a question that is yet to be answered. I'm not expecting you to give like a five-minute, oh, here's the deal, and we're done, next question. All right, this is a juicy topic. It's going to produce juicy conversation. And we can... We can go well, for I hours on this. We can, but I do think there's actually a quick answer. It oh, really? It, well, yeah. then I retract my statement. I, I don't think it's easy or that we can't tease out implications and do Bible study for years on it. Mm. Um, but see, let's see. This is the common complaint against the Judeo-Christian world, it, God, is that he must either not be all-powerful or not be all-loving since he continues to allow suffering in the world. So the presumption is they can't see the goodness of purpose of suffering. Therefore, there must be something, mm-hmm. some deficiency in God, like he can't stop it, he doesn't have the power, he doesn't really love us. But if you change the presumption, which sees the glory of suffering and the purpose of suffering as as bringing, as birthing a people mm. of for God, the sons of God, then, then we don't, then I, I, to me the whole question crumbles. Like, the presumption is that there's not a good good that could come out of it. Mm-hmm. Out right? of the suffering. Yeah, there's a suffering. Well, look at this. So this suffering is not fruitful. Mm-hmm. Therefore, why isn't he stopping it? He must be weak or unloving. But if the suffering is now seen as fruitful, primarily through the paradigm of the cross, mm-hmm. where now we have, oh, the greatest thing that ever happened is simultaneously the worst thing that ever ever happened, mm. right? This crushing of the innocent lamb is the most wicked thing that has ever happened. Mm. It's also the most delightful thing that has ever happened. So now we have a paradigm for suffering that neither requires a weak or unloving God. He's both powerful and loving, and because of that, he will birth a people, this Psalm or Isaiah 45, through adversity and suffering. Mm. So Jack, have you been with me so long? I feel like this shouldn't be a surprising teaching to you. No, it's not. But I wanted to ask the question because it comes up all the time in why, like, why does God allow suffering? It's like, I need to get, like, a concrete... He doesn't allow it. He causes it for his glory because that's how you make... That's how you make things. That's how you make things. That's how you make glorious things. Like there was no, there was no way for Christ to be glorious without suffering. He's just some mm. guy that waltz in and smacks everyone around. Like that's not impressive. That's it's, not glorious. It's just the table turning scene at the temple, and that's all he does. Yeah, yeah. This is just beating people up. Like that's not the glory is the suffering. So, you, yeah, we have to see that that suffering is from the hand of God and is how He makes His people. It's how He made His Son. Mm. You know, it's in in time space. Like Christ is God is the self-sacrificing, eternal, loving, you know, glorious being. But in time, you know, to, when you step into space time, mm-hmm. now that that for Christ to be made to be proven the Son of God is for Him to go through those sufferings, and that's how you make good things. There's mm-hmm. no other way. So it's like a it's like a. Uh... Not an oven, uh, like a forge almost. Yeah, a furnace. Uh, yeah, furnace. There we are. Yeah. Right, and so that's, and then then that trickles down and applies to Christians as well. So like, why are you through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom? Mm. Why? Because that's the only way in. Now it doesn't mean you're going to get martyred and you're going to you know get cancer. Like you may, and that'll yep. be used in that. But at the very least, you'll you you will more the more to, the flesh will be mortified. Your sin is a mm. tribulation. That's a death. And you will, you will die. You will either either die before Christ comes back, 
or when he comes back in the air immediately while you are still alive, mm. you will die. Mm -hmm. Like you will be transformed in the moment, a twinkling of an eye. That is a tribulation. Like everything you know of yourself and who you are being ripped away and transformed, that's a loss. Like you, that's not something you give up easily. Mm -hmm. So this is how glory happens. There is no other way. So once you see that, and now it trickles down into, and it's not easy because you look at really horrifying things. Yeah. Like genocide. Um, slavery, yep. all these things. But again, the key is to key, is to cling to the paradigm of the cross. If if we understand that through the cross, the most the most beautiful thing came from the most horrifying thing. That is now the paradigm. So mm. so we're not looking for God to get rid of suffering. There's never longer a question. We realize that that is the essential fabric mm. of God in the universe. It's like a uh, it's an axiom. There is no other way. Oh, I like that terminal or like that that uh, imagery that it's an axiom. Because mm -hmm. sometimes that's what it comes down to. Because axiom, the nature of axioms is that we just accept this as truth, and you can't really break it down any further. But um, so, so if if Heiser's response to that is that for God to remove suffering from hum from humanity, He would need to remove humanity itself, which would go against His attention for humanity in the first place, which is. To have, you know, yeah, he's basically saying, yeah, I think it's the wrong angle because it presumes that the existence of suffering is, is to be desired to be removed. So, well, in the in, in the new creation, there won't be suffering, though. Is that correct? There will there will be dying to self in the new creation, or will we have already died to ourselves by the time that it I think you will you will take on godliness, which is a perpetual other-centeredness mm. right that's that's there's mm. a there's a resistance to that now yeah which is what the suff which is why it's suffering you know like you know and the, our flesh is weak and um but that that um so what, what, okay let me back up here so god eternally exists as a as a self-sacrificing others-oriented giver yep right now he's going to enter a world where that's the case, and he's going to manifest himself as that. But the rest of the world isn't that way. We're bent the other way, self-centered, self-preserving, even evil and oppressive of others. So to be changed from one to the other, you know, is going to require um, pain, suffering, pruning. Um, but I think I would argue that what we're, where we're being taken taken mm -hmm. is where that. Um, Others oriented, so it's not a suffering in heaven, I guess, but it is a, no. it is a consistent. I would call it a consistent dying, hmm. you know, to others. That's what the powers, the Trinity, the Father. This is getting really up there, meta, but <laughs> the Father's constantly glorifying the Son. Other, you know, he's, he's centered on Him, he's pouring out His energy and life and praise and and uh, love to the Son. The Son is doing likewise to the Father. Mm -hmm. They're not sitting there going, "Well, who's going to serve me today?" You know, like. No, they're just they're just constantly pointing to one another, others oriented, and then that generates a power, perpetual love and energy that never ends, mm. right? So you get shadows of it in a good relationship, when in a, a good friendship or a good marriage, when you are when both are others oriented, there's flourishing that happens, mm. right? And when they turn, no, no, we never do it perfectly, but to the degree that you can be others oriented, the, the relationship thrives. Um, but to the degree that everyone in the in the, that unit, friendship unit or family unit, is self-centered, mm -hmm. it, it it's going to be toxic. So this idea of like being others-oriented and dying for the sake of others, I don't think is a temporary thing that is 
in the creation. It's it's the essence of who God is, which is why the cross exists. It's a picture yeah. of what it always has been. Do you think? But do you think in the new creation? Because I mean, like the the dying to self suffering. It's like okay, I could see that. But what about cancer, or I'm hungry, or violence? Ooh, hungry. Yeah. You know, think. You mean like like beyond just normal eating, but like yeah. you're starving. No, it seems to me that's not the case, right? Because it's. I mean, yeah, it's every tear will be wiped away. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, there, but there's there's still the question of okay, let's say God is creating more directly suffering than just allowing it. Still, why why so long? The question could still be yeah. standing like why wait? Like why not? Which was the end of your question there? Why not? Couldn't a new creation happen today? Even yeah, even if you uh, even if you allow pun intended mm. that say okay, suffering is inherent to what it means to be human, and that's the tool that God uses to glorify us. Why does he wait to bring the new creation? Yeah, because at some point it's going to end. Right. There's going to be an end point. And then, you know, so, so what do you think? Why so long? I mean, I have thoughts on that, but what do you think? I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll be humble and say I may have speculation, but I don't know. I don't know. It's I wouldn't say I struggle with it, but it's something that I acknowledge as I, I don't have the answer to that Can question. I, let me broaden it. So if the question is why wait so long, couldn't it, isn't a related or higher level, higher order question just like why at all? Why was why the fall? Why mm. not just yeah? No, it, it, one yeah, it's all it's all interrelated in, in the the question. Why does yeah. time exist? You're kind of asking. Ooh, I like that. I like that question. You I think that's kind of at the root. Is like why time? Mm. Well, why not? Like how long is the right amount of time? There's presumption that yeah, I mean, God exists out of time. Doesn't exist. Ex- Experience time like us now he creates beings mm-hmm. that do it's inevitable that they would experience time and we're yeah. kind of going well why time mm. well because you're not god i mean that's really going philosophical with it but i do think there's some essential something there about us not being god mm. that requires your experience of time so how long interesting i don't know what's the right formula right like what's the right pace yeah you know so god god knows the timing and pace i mean i think that's it like we just we of course think it should be shorter because it's hard yeah so hey jesus come back already right and he's saying no not yet Mm -hmm. so he he knows right he's timing history and all these things for maximum glorification and maximum joy to his people and do you think it's we think that's next week or last week and he's like he knows when that is do you think it's related or maybe a similar strategy to what we saw in um, the big, uh, transition from Genesis to Exodus where God's talking to Israel and saying your people are going to go to Egypt and they're going to be enslaved there for 400 years because the um, the Amorites, was it the Amorites? Uh, inequity is not yet complete. So he says, I'm going to put you on hold for a little while. I'm going to let them stew in their own muck until it gets bad enough and then I'm going to send you in. Do you think it's something related to that? Perhaps not just with not with the Amorites this time, but maybe with the Son of God, sons of God. Yeah, it all relates to. I mean, I think that's where he has these processes and and uh, in in these things we go through to reveal. I mean, here's one thing that popped into my mind: like there's a there's a number of martyrs that mm-hmm. are predetermined. Like if we could push the button and stop history today, 
you know, like, no, let's get Jesus back here and stop this. Well, you're robbing those martyrs of their glory, mm. those who are yet to come. Like, these things are just too big for us. Yes. No, I, we're, we're not going to understand it. No. I so, think when we're going to go, when we, you know, when we experience a new creation, God comes to earth and inhabits with us. And we can ask him all these questions where our minds are going to get blown away. And it's going to be awesome. And it's maybe even at that time we'll say, oh, yeah, it's so obvious now. But I never would have guessed that when I was still on earth. And Well, in Isaiah 45, um, so this is my passage that I'm preaching on this weekend, so Cedar Falls Spoilers. will get that in two weeks. Ooh. Um, oh, I don't know my Bible. Um, so it gets into this, this idea um, that basically we don't know how to do this. Like, So basically God is running history – and, uh, and then in verse 9, he says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. So we're the pot. And this is where Paul is referencing kind of the potter and the clay thing. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. It's com- you know, complaining. You're going to make a pot with no handles? <laughs> Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? His point is being, look, I am making a people. Like, do you know how to do this? Do you know how long it takes? Do you know the right Mm. timing? Do you know the right processes? So you know how to... His vision is the sons of God, in this sense, humans, redeemed humanity. uh, Romans 8, that the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. That's what God is doing. And he's saying, you know how to do that? Go ahead, Jack. Tell me the the time and the process. I process. didn't say I, I know. Knew. I'm not saying you did, <laughs> but I'm saying that's how he. Yeah, I think that's the question. Like really, so you know how how long it should take, and mm-hmm. why why should it be f- faster than longer? We we always want it to be faster because we want out, right? Mm-hmm. But and then that shows our bias. You know, if Jesus said, "Hey, I'm coming back in uh you know, 2052." I doubt anyone would go, well, why so quickly? <laughs> How's it possible to mm. do this so quickly? Mm. You know, because our, our bias tilts us. We always want it to come quicker because right. we're stuck in this thing and we want out. It makes sense. But do you, we don't. Do you go. mean why so long? When I you... think people would ask. I sort of people would say why so long. They ne- they would not say why so quickly. Oh. Which reveals that, that we just, we're just going to tilt toward I quick. See. Yep. But we don't know the right date. We don't, you know? and we don't know. We don't know all the factors going into you know his planning either. No, and we we can't. Um, oh, I just had. Um, oh no, yeah. So what you were talking about, how like you know we're not, we can't expect to know how to do it better than him, right? I mean, we see that. I think one, we see it in Job, that exact same demonstration. I think we see it in a beautiful and very enlightening way. In that, at the beginning of Job, we the reader see the reason why God is going to uh, have Job go through those trials and tribulations. And then he does, and then same conversation. It's like, do you know, um, like Job, like, why are you doing this? Uh, I wish I were dead. And God comes down. So he comes down, and he actually talks with Job. He's like, okay, fine. God's going to explain everything. Job's going to be, oh, okay, I get it now. I'm, I'm so sorry. But God doesn't. He just uses that argument. It's like, do you know how to do this better than me? He doesn't explain why he did it. And I think that demonstrates, and well, let me back up. He doesn't say it, and then Job still 
humbles himself and puts his trust back. And I'm not, I'm not sure if he ever took his trust away from God. Well, certainly, I think he he he. Yes, that's why he was. What's he repenting of? He uh, repents in dust and ashes because of what? What's the repentance for? Because of was it the not trust? Because he never cursed God. But he didn't. Did he? Was it that he? Well, I gave think up it, his you, trust? you know you you can see times in there where he he overplays his hand. Like, so I think what's happening in Job is that he's a righteous guy huh. generally. Like you'd say, hey, we we'll make him an elder at the church, but nobody's holy. And then God brings suffering into his life, and his friends start accusing him of being a sinner. Right. And then he's like, oh heck no, and he overplays his case. Mm. He goes, and he he basically says. Yeah, bring God. I'll plead my case before God. Like, yep. let's let's go. And God's like, "Ooh, wait a minute." <laughs> you are, and God is revealing that there is, even though Job is a righteous man, mm-hmm. there is uh, a degree of self reliance, self righteousness, anger, mm-hmm. tr- lack of trust in God's sovereignty and processes. Yeah. Which is why then God, that's what He says. Like, you think you know how yep. the, how I should form people, how I should what I should do? You think I've committed an injustice? You don't you don't know anything, right? And he doesn't explain. Okay, but look, here's why I did it. You know, this you know, Satan came in. And he he was. I, I bet you. And then and I said, oh, I can't. I can't let that stand. And he doesn't explain it. He just says, kind of like the the uses the pot and the ponder situation and says, trust me. And then when we now apply that situation to the Bible itself, where God never says, okay, here's the thing. Here's why I'm going to allow suffering until I come back, which is going to be this date, and doesn't lay it all out as I think that we're just supposed, not just, but we are supposed to trust Him. Two thoughts. One is, uh, no, he doesn't clearly answer Job's question, but I think it can be deduced from the trajectory of the story, which is what he did was he reveal he he purified Job. He revealed degrees of idolatry and, and self self reliance that Job needed to be be needed to repent from. Yeah, but he doesn't. I mean, he he could have explained to Job and said, "Oh, I was minding my business in the divine council," and then the Satan guy came in and said, "Hey, Job is you know he's only liking you because you give him all this stuff." And I was like, "No, I don't think he's." I was like, "Let's try that out." And that's why I'll, why your family's dead. You know, he doesn't explain no, he doesn't wipe it out. No, no, no. But the, again, the reader understands that's what happened. But he, but God had the opportunity to tell Job what happened, and he still didn't. Although that's not why, and in fact, in the in the narrative, God is the one that says that brings Job to Satan's mind. Where have you been? Oh, ro- roaming to and fro on the earth, and mm-hmm. and God says, "Have you considered my servant Job?" Oh, so God had a purpose. He brought Job to s- Satan's attention. Oh, I didn't actually. I didn't pick that up. Yeah. Huh. So anyway. And, and, and no, we don't know specific purposes, but I do think there is a general purposes, which are he is forming a people. Like I said, he is that is what he's doing. Now, how does this play out individually? And like, you know, how does this specific change of this president to this president, how's that going to affect yeah. God's redemptive plan? Like, I don't know, but I know that it does. Right. I know that the reason whoever gets inaugurated on January for whatever, 20th, 21st, um, serves the purpose of the forming of God's people. Mm-hmm. That is the only thing, I mean, you could say glorifying himself through the forming of his people, redeeming them through Christ. Like, that is what history is all about. Mm-hmm. Now, that gets into, you know, complicated things. Like, well, does that mean, you know, is Biden, let's say he wins God's chosen instrument? Well, I mean, technically, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, like Biden, it's like there's a much, many more controversial figures that you can ask that question about. No, he's the worst. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, man. What are we doing? For, how are we do, looking for time? Uh, let's, well, uh, 
We I got time. Okay. I got time. And we could do a part two. Heiser makes so let's go back to your first question. Yeah. Oh, I think that was the that was the what I thought was gonna be the hard hitting hitting one. So Oh, let's yeah. see. Heiser makes two controversial claims about the writing of the Old Testament. He argues that the Old Testament was edited, perhaps heavily, during the second temple period. And thus, the texts we read today are not the material (laughs) of the original authors. Oh, gosh. He argues that the Old Testament is a polemic. Polemic means... Malicious satire. Is that literally what it means? I'll I'll look it up. Will you look it up? Yeah. Against the surrounding pagan religions, when these points are combined, it would seem that the Old Testament may be a sort of malicious satire there you go. against the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Greeks rather than its own standalone text. Hmm. This would have deep implications on the historicity of the Old Testament as well as how we're supposed to read and interpret it and would be intimately married to the age-old question about whether we ought to take the Bible literally or figuratively. Oh my gosh, do you have a response to any of these points? <laughs> Told you it was a hard-hitting question. <laughs> now, there's just a lot there. Now, again, what I, I want to preface our discussion of everything that I said in there, I don't necessarily, you know, believe or hold to. But though, like when I was reading his arguments, I'm like, th- those things came to my mind. It's like, well, how do we resolve these? Sure. Uh, so, real quick, polemic. Uh, two definitions according to Merriam-Webster: a, an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another, and then b. The art or practice of dis, uh, disputation or controversy, usually used in a, in plural but singular or plural in construction. So that first one's probably more applicable. So an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. So the fact that Heiser was describing it as a polemic was saying that the Old Testament was, according to him, what it, how I interpreted him saying was a, a, a driving factor of the Old Testament was to specifically point at these pagan religions and, and, and bash them. So that's, and then also more context, Second Temple period for those, you know, could, could you give context on that for those who don't know? What Second, second Temple period means? Yeah. It's when the Israel, well, it's basically the time of Jesus, when the Israelites came back and from exile and built rebuilt the temple, mm-hmm. right? They're living there, awaiting, well, the promise to, for God to come. Yep. You know, and then they're run over by, uh, you know, Romans and... Well, first it was the... Because they came back from... So Cyrus let them come he back. sent them back, right. And then they started... And then Ezra and Nehemiah, they started rebuilding the second temple. And then the Old Testament just sort of stops there. And then the next thing you know, it's Jesus' time. And there's, where do these Romans come from? And why is everybody speaking Aramaic? You know, like all, all the, you know, where, what happened in the middle? And interesting tidbit, that's where all the, if you've ever heard of the Apocrypha, right? That's when all of the Apocrypha was written, um, is in that inner period. And that inner period is the Second Temple period, uh, period. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not sure why you're bringing that up. Just to give people context, because what Heiser said was during that period, Importantly, after the exile and after the Israelites were a bit miffed at the Babylonians oh, and I the Assyrians, okay. they went back. This is what he says. They went back and edited the Old Testament to emphasize how bad the Babylonians are. Okay. So, number one, I'm going to actually take the second part of this first. He argues that the Old Testament is a polemic against the surrounding pagan religions. And then you say... Um, 
it would seem that the Old Testament may be a sort of malicious satire against the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Greeks rather than its own standalone text. I don't, I, I feel like that's a false dichotomy. Like, mm-hmm. like the, the scripture is going to be spoken into a context, and the context mm-hmm. is God redeeming his people who are worshiping false gods. Like, right. Like, it, to me, it would seem inherently necessary to be clarifying truth versus uh, lies yep. is going to include some degree of polemic. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's necessary given the context of what is happening in history. So give so I, I would agree, right? It would it, because of how inherently ingrained the spiritual warfare is to the story of of humanity. That topic is going to most certainly pervade God's word to humanity. So it makes sense. But one of the so. I, I certainly agree with you on a high level. On a lower level, on the more speci- like specific details about that, what that makes me think, however, is that there are some events or details in the Old Testament that uh, may be, I don't think figurative is the right word, but where they were put in there specifically just to say, well, here, we're going to take what the Babylonians believe, and we're going to flip it on its head to make a point. And then people will see that in the Bible— can you think of any specific example? Yes, I can. It's like either, what? Uh, the Garden of the, Eden. Okay. Was one that I can't remember. I, I I have it in my notes if we want to take the time to look it up, which I don't think we have the time for. But, you know, that when he was saying Garden of Eden, oh, well, I'll say this. Genesis 1 through 11, the very first chapters of the Bible, Heiser was saying uh, a lot of these surrounding nations have uh, very similar accounts of the creation story. Yeah. And so then, and then if you take that alongside with the Old Testament was written against these, um, these pagan religions and what their imagery, a lot of times they took, what Heiser says is the Old Testament takes imagery from these other pagan Mm -hmm. uh, and uses that to glorify God instead. So in that case, did the Garden of Eden, one, did it happen, you know, at all? Did oh, it happen gosh. the way? Yeah, I know, right? They, they, these are the when he when he was getting into these details. I'm like, this is these have so, far-reaching implications. So, yeah, go ahead. And I want to also say it's possible. So there's a couple of different, I think, pathways that people can take mindset-wise. Is okay. These pagan religions didn't, you know, have they they had their own lies to tell their own people. Then God or the well, God took their stories, put them in the Old Testament to flip, and then told them in a way to flip them on their own head and show them how uh, un- inadequate these pagan religions and their god- false gods are, or these pagan religions were corrupting the truth, Yeah, and what they said isn't just blatant lies or mm-hmm. completely made up, completely fabricated. They took the truth and twisted it to their own ends, and then the Old Testament is maybe untwisting it back. But in a way where it's specifically kind of pointing out details in a way in a way that the readers would say, oh, wait, oh, Baal, you know, lives in, you know, Mount North. But then it says, oh, wait, God's going to take Mount North. Oh, and then they'll get it. But then in modern times, we kind of lose that. And that's where some of all the imagery and finer details come in. Yeah, I would take that second approach. That's what I that's how I view it mm. is that, yeah, the, the reason there's a lot of commonality between mm-hmm. a lot of these right. stories is that they're rooted in some common events that were actually that actually happened. Right. But then they, you know, they're twisted and yeah, and then God's coming back and correcting them. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to go oh, these events never ex- happened. God's just using their stories, you know. That that I think th- it depends on where you think the origins was, right? And I I would think it makes sense to me that the origins are actual events. You know, the Tower of Babel and the flood oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. 
things like that that are twisted and then God is correcting. And therefore, it includes not just a statement of what happened, but also yep. you know, a debunking or polemic against the, the false narratives mm-hmm. of the nations. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't view that as too much of a problem. Um, but the idea of the Old Testament being edited perhaps heavily during the Second Temple period. Now, mm-hmm. here's the thing. You could do a lot of reading about um, cano- canonicity, canonization, like how things become canon, like how, yeah. when, when's the Bible done? Yeah. You know, when is, and, uh, you know, again, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. to me, like you can, there's why, why would you, let's say it was edited. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why would I assume that if it was edited, mm-hmm. that its canonicity is called into question? Right. Like, I, I know how the scripture should be assembled. I know how that should play out over time. Like, there's a real simple ways to like, um, attack this stuff you know you can go back and say well the you know the new testament wasn't fully canonized until the year 300 you know people say that like well, that's a problem why is that a problem yeah what why we have these presumptions of how canonicity should happen how texts should be finalized and canonized into a you know scriptural form and i just don't i don't know what that should look like and i can imagine it looking a lot of different ways mm-hmm. so um because at the end of the day, I have a presumption that God is ordaining all of that. Right. And I have a trust in his word because it's self-attesting is true and good and beautiful. So, again, I don't I don't really have a strong problem with that. Now, I think it's really hard, you know, to uh, go back 2,000 years and 3,000 years and, yeah. and build a strong case like for, um, hey, this was edited this way and this was edited that way. I mean, there's... I don't think it's probably. I think it's really difficult. I'm so I, I know Heiser brought up the point of there was a, a, a there was a passage in in Joshua where he's going through uh, Canaan, you know, in, in the conquesting the the promised land, and then there's a reference in the text to the hill countries of Israel and the hill country of Judah, which were countries that were not yet formulated, so that. Hydra's saying that points to a later, an editing that somebody put in later because those references were anachronistic to, the, to those conquests. It could also mean that maybe they were written or the book itself was written later on. You know, it's like it's got those implications where I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And this is where, you know, you can read um, a lot about this stuff. And, you know, I'll, I can suggest a resource. Uh, John Piper's book on this issue let me look it up um you, you can get into like history and how it was assembled and what you know transmission mm. you know of from different languages and all this and that but at the end of the day it really just comes down to this like is it a lamp to your feet like when you read this mm-hmm. is it self-attesting because where does the authority lie like, oh, I'll believe the Bible if some scholars write some stuff that'll come mm. in. Like, oh, so they, they're the authority? Right. They have, the authority is now shifting. I remember seeing this book uh, by R.C. Sproul called Why We Should Believe the Bible. I'm mm. like, well, why should I believe this book? Mm. You know, Good like, point. why yeah. should I believe you? Well, I believe the Bible primarily because it's, it's self-attesting. Like, when I, and particularly, I, Jesus has become compelling and self-attesting to me. Mm. He is, he is now the, um, he's gone from being 
weakness and folly to the wisdom and power of God. And and he's the true prophet. He's the one that speaks truth about sin and grace mm. and wisdom. And I'm like, wow, he's the king. And he attests the veracity of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You know, so and, and it's you know, and the whole scripture um, attests to him. Now, so again, I do think that's one of the challenges in uh, academia is that. That's basically kind of what's happening. Is you got to be careful not to let the uh, the authority shift. Now, there's value in scholarly work and reading about backgrounds and culture and history. And I think the Unseen Realm does a great job of that. Mm. Um, but you know, do I believe the Bible because some scholar wrote a compelling case for it, or is it right. does it stand on its? Is it a standalone text? Right? Like, mm. um, I think for centuries people didn't have have access to the kind of things that you know, have risen in the last few hundred years about scholarly work and research and all that. Like, Oh, well, right, yeah. I guess they couldn't understand the Bible. They couldn't, you know, and I just don't think that's true. Mm, because that's, of that's, that's, that is a good point because, you, know, you know, we got along fine for, you know, 2,000 years from Jesus till now, and it's only until recent. Like, Hebrew was like a, it was a dead language for a long time. I think pretty much from probably the Second Temple period up to like the 1800s. Is when it got really revived, if I remember right. Now there were some, obviously. I mean, like there were like uh, uh, people in like the rabbinic line of work who still kept it alive, but it wasn't spoken like it is today in the country of Israel. You know, where it's it's spoken by people or a wide people group. It was spoken to by by a small group of people, it kept alive that way. But you know that that that's an example. Of what I mean, where it's like you're right. This wasn't uh, all the all the resources that we have today that would attest to it, to the Bible being uh, God's word is still that, you know, they didn't have that. And yet, as you said, they got along just fine. And then does that mean that the Bible is less valid during that period of time? No. Yeah, it's, yeah, God's gonna, at the end of the day, I mean, literally it's a simple faith. Like, I believe God yep. didn't, it's like, you know, people say, how can the Bible be trusted when it was written by men? It's like, well, this presumes that God was like, Oh crap! I I let Jack, you know, get a hold of the scriptures, and now he screwed it up. It's yeah. like I don't know. The presumption is that God runs the universe, is unfolding his his redemptive plan, and through the foibles of men in history, will the truth will be revealed. It won't be it'll it won't be stopped. Like mm-hmm. so, the book by Piper is called A Peculiar Glory. A Peculiar Glory. How this and even how the scriptures, how the Christian scriptures. Uh, reveal their complete truthfulness. Hmm. So that's where he's making that argument, like, yeah, 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 listen to the scholars, all that, yeah, yeah. but like, does it have a peculiar glory? Is it a lamp to your feet as, as you know, is the law a lamp to your feet, as, as David says? Mm-hmm. And at which point, like, you know, if it is, it's if it's where you find life and, and joy and rock solid, what you believe is rock solid truth, like, then nothing, I don't, whatever article some scholar writes is just... Like, why would you believe him? Well, and they may be get one. They may be getting it wrong themselves. Yeah, I mean, they, they, there's a difference between having the data and being able to interpret the data. And those are two. Very often, there's no smoking gun. Uh, you have to interpret what you have in like incomplete data in front of you. And often, those interpretations are wrong. And when people take those interpretations as gospel, then they are mis, you know, subsequently misled. And I think too, um, the. Kind of summarize my thoughts on it is we can, we'll never run out of scholarly 
gusto towards the Bible, trying to prove it, trying to trying to disprove it. And we would drive ourselves mad trying to subscribe to all of it and make sure we had all of our ducks in a row. I think the question is, do we trust God's word? Do we trust his speaking into us through it? And do we trust the glory that he's going to bring him to himself and to us through its story? Yeah. We have to we have to confront that issue of of trust because yeah. we'll never have a that's the whole point of it, right? The whole Bible talks about do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And then we say, yes, we do, but I'm going to wait or I'm still going to pursue a mountain of evidence that points me to the specific story that happened or to make sure that I, I, that you really are there for me to trust you. It's like, well, no, then you're missing the point. Yeah. Lean not on your own understanding type stuff, yeah. right? So it yeah. doesn't mean we can't pursue things, but it's where, where do you lean? Where's the final? Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean that we can't pursue things, but we will come to points where we have to say to ourselves, I don't know. I can't find the answer to this question. One of your, we're going to have to do a part two on this, man. Um, one of your uh, sub questions within this question is uh, would be intimately married to the age old question about whether we ought to take the Bible literally or figuratively. Oh, yes. That is like, that's a, that's a, that's a whole sermon series in and of itself, I would think. <clears throat> Oh, it'd be boring. There's a lot of <laughs> philosophy. Um, well, there's the question of should we take it, you know, should we take it biblically or figuratively? Then there's the other question. Of literally that. or figuratively. What did yeah. I say? Biblically or figuratively. Oh, we should definitely take it biblically, yes. <laughs> no. uh, should we take it literally or figuratively? But then there's the other question of does it matter as well? That's part of this. That's part of that discussion. So I think so. By by the way, people use those terms. I think the answer is it depends on the passage. Well, y- y- okay, that's a, that is an important point. Yes, because right. so, like um, Jesus says, you know, he uh, well, one all of his parables for for one thing are all parables. There wasn't actually a guy right. who sent his son to uh, his vineyard and then his son was killed. Right. He was coming up with a story to make a point. So, okay, so that's figurative. So does that mean, and then there's other points where, you know, uh, Jesus wept. Oh, is that figurative too? It's like, no, he probably was actually crying, you know, then, so you're right. There are passages that are literal and passages that are figurative. Right. And so, so that sorting point. through that can be, can bring up dis, uh, disagreements and that's fine. But that's where I just say that, yeah, it just depends on the purpose of the, yes. of the passage and how it's being used. Yep. And, um, but I think you're probably... Because of the context of of your question, which was Genesis one through eleven, was mm-hmm. more related to like, oh, are these figurative stories that we should draw spiritual meaning from, or are they literal stories mm-hmm. that um, actually happened? And even if they did happen, you know, are some of the details uh, fabricated to make a point as well? So there's that sliding gauge of from literal to figurative, and I don't know the answer. Obviously, um, I don't think anybody. Uh, well, I'm sure there are certain people who who would feel confident. Let's take for example the, 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 the Tower of Babel. Yeah. Good example. So everybody was speaking the same language and everybody was gathered in the same place building the same city, if I remember the verbiage right. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a this is another factor that plays into this conversation, and I learned this from the Bible project, actually. Uh where they said that the Hebrew in the, of the Bible, well, in, any account back then, not just the Old Testament, uh, you know, other other 
nations and other religions and even non-religious things uh, follow this same trend that I'm about to explain, which is they used hyperbolic language. So you know when the when it says that all people were gathered and they were they were all spoke the same language, it's not what Tim Mackey of the Bible Project was saying was that isn't intended to be taken literally. For example, all right, I guess that would be his argument. Um, I don't know if he was talking about that specific instance, but using the fact that he said a lot of this language is hyperbolic on purpose, if we apply that to you know that passage, that's how it could affect it or our interpretation of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, my general counsel would be, unless you have strong evidence otherwise, and take it literally, um, that that actually happened, especially when you, particularly the Tower of Babel incident, when you... It, it it ties in so broadly to the rest of the um, mm-hmm. trajectory of Scripture, yeah. which is, you know, these nations have been scattered, yep. and now God is going to gather them again. And they're and the whole purpose of redemptive history then is to, yes, form a people yep. from every nation and tongue and tribe, and they will be at the end of the throne, you know, at the throne room, um, worshiping Jesus. Like I think because of that uh, per- permeating theme, yeah. I think it leans. Yeah, I think it it it, it, that to me goes. Well, this is actually what's happening. This wasn't just some story to make a point about the pride of man. But it's like this is this is what's happened. The nations have been scattered. Here's when it happened, and we need to. The great commission is to go get them. Could it be that the nations are indeed scattered and just you know disinherited and and being ruled over by the sons of God? But the event that sparked that wasn't you know uh, the Tower of Babel. But then the Tower of Babel was a story told to summarize the situation that I understand what you're saying I just don't see any well, like why would you posit that like why is that a necessary if you have the yep. simple explanation mm-hmm. why would you grasp at a more complex situ- uh, description well, situ- well because I mean for the thing that sticks out to me and it's a it's a sticking point that it's a sticking point that has stuck with me is uh, mm. that Jesus speaks in parables all the time. That's his primary. That's his primary method of communication, particularly to uh, people outside the apostles or the, his disciples. But so, you can tell when he's doing it. That's what I'm saying. There's tri- like you know he speaks in parables because there's there's triggers and signs that you pick up and go, oh, this mm-hmm. is a parable. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if Jesus said, hey, yesterday I was at Martha's house, which you know doesn't do, but like. Nah. Uh, you you go is oh supposed he supposed to be taking figure you know but if he goes there was a man you know and like yep. uh, there's these uh, what do you call linguistic Q- signs or keys cues yeah. yeah that make you go oh we're going into parable land here like um, so and maybe you and maybe those guys are arguing the Bible Project guys I don't have to look at it that <gasps> there are some cues here they didn't nec- well uh, no they uh, I'm not the Bible the only reason I brought the Bible Project up is because of the whole hyperbolic language thing with the Hebrew. And at that time, they were specific, if I remember right, they were specifically talking about like uh, Joshua's conquests when they said they like killed every man, woman, and child. And then they said, well, this is hyperbolic language. We see this all the time. Right, 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 right. Outside of Hebrew, we see it all the time from the ancient Yeah, yeah. Everybody was there. Oh, everybody was there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, everybody, huh? Yeah. Like, so anyway, that would be my, my take. Yeah, yeah. There are parables. And so, you know, uh, how do you recognize them? And you know, again, there could be some disagreement on that, but I think... When you read historical accounts, but I would say the default is these things happen. If you have some clear sign to you that this is cueing some kind of like metaphor or parable, yeah, okay. Um, but at the end of the day, 
you know, what is the, the truth that's going to be conveyed under that is the same, which is the true God reigns. Right. The nations are in opposition and scattered and misled, and, and that's a an, gathering of, you know, the Great Commission is the gathering of the nations back to worship of the true God. And, to, and for the sake of the argument, I'm going to, for, for what I'm going to say, like, even, well, even assuming that they're, that, you know, the Tower of Babel, the the Garden of Eden, um, all, all, Genesis 1 through 11, even if they are 100% parables, what's the whole point of of Jesus' parables, right? Because if somebody were to go and say, uh, take Jesus' parable, you know, about the vineyard and the, the tenants killing his servants and his son, and if somebody were to say, oh, wait, that was just a parable? Oh, well, that doesn't matter. It's like, well, no, it's teaching, like, the lesson of how things are. It's still valuable, and we should still take it to heart. Whether it's a literal story or Jesus telling, making this story up to make a point doesn't matter because the physical, the historical account isn't the point. Right. This series of events that there was some guy who owned a vineyard. Oh, where was it? It, it, it doesn't matter where it is. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter what the guy's name was. That's not the point. So even if they are parables, again, devil's advocate, I'm not actually saying that this is what I believe, but even if they were, does it matter? Well, because the historical account still has a deeper meaning also. Like in both instances, the deeper meaning is the point. Whether it was a, Because history is a parable. Mm. <laughs> oh man. You know I what I mean? Like everything is. So so it's not about ultimately the, the historical event either. It's about what is happening significant the significance behind it with, yes. with God and worship and man and all these things. So yes. Okay. I've got to wrap up here because I gotta to get to uh my next thing. Gotcha. Um a minute twelve or an hour twelve minutes, not bad, a little over an hour. Jeez, man, this, I went by fast. I go so why so fast. Um so let's do it again. We got a few more questions here, and uh, we'll do it again. All right. So fun stuff. Uh, a lot of, a lot of. I don't know. I feel like we packed in a lot of stuff that we, maybe just raises more questions. Well, but. The, the, I mean, this again to uh, to suffix to suffix our conversations. These the these the points that Heiser brings up, and the, the whole topic of spiritual warfare, it opens up a lot of implications, a lot of implications, and those implications are deep. And I think it's important that we discuss them openly, because yeah. I think if we were just to shoo them under a rug, you know, that's not gonna, then that's not addressing the problem. Yeah, it's not addressing. You know, if there's miscommunication or misunderstanding of some topic, you know, people are saying, "I see this, I don't understand what it means." Help! If you just shoo them under a rug, is that really building them up? It doesn't seem like it's building them up. No, let's talk about it. I think one of the big implications is how the church relates to the government. Oh really? Mm. Ooh, I can't. I can't. Well, I I've just said it. That's I've a said preview. It during... Preview for the next time. Right? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me not. Let me just stop there. So, anyways, <laughs> all right. All thanks for listening. Thanks, Jack, for being here. Thanks for having me. Yep. See you later. See ya.